This morning will be a very, very different Bible study. Different from what you're used to. Sort of a cross between a history lesson, a prophecy lesson, and a Twilight Zone episode. It's a strange dream that Daniel sees. In fact, the rest of the book is a series of strange visions and dreams that God gives to Daniel about the future. The future of Gentile kingdoms from his time, 6th century B.C., all the way into the future. So I appreciate if you follow closely, put your thinking caps on. This is one of those studies that we remember what the Lord said, that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, but also with all of our mind, as well as our soul and our strength. Chapter 7 is the second part of the book of Daniel. The first part, chapters 1 through 6, deal with the personal life of Daniel, their narrative. Chapters 7 through 12 are prophetic, as we said, very detailed as what the future will hold from Daniel's time. In chapter 6, Daniel was in the lion's den. This morning, we want to put him in the critic's den. Because he's been in there for a long time and there are critics who have attacked and mocked and said all sorts of things about Daniel in this book and just said, oh, it's a forgery, it's a fake, and you can't rely on it. And this morning we're going to look at how important it is as a foundation to have this kind of a study before we get into the rest of the book. You know, the Bible has always had critics. You've experienced that. I know that you've had unbelievers come up to you and say, Oh, that book, and it's so many contradictions. And, of course, when somebody says, There's so many contradictions, I'll usually hand them a Bible and say, Show me one. Of course, they usually haven't read it enough to know if there is one or not. They just think it's intellectual to say that. Reminds me of what Carl Henry, a brilliant philosopher and theologian, said when he was in college, he was giving his testimony on a college campus, and sharing with a small group in an open-air situation. As he was talking about God and God's love for the people, an agnostic came by and started mocking Henry in the midst of this crowd. You believe in the Bible? You believe all those things are true? You believe in Jonah? He said, yes, sir, I believe in the Bible, and I do believe that a great fish swallowed Jonah. Oh, that's impossible. How can you expect a man to survive three days with all of those gastric juices, the gases from the alimentary tract? How do you expect that? You believe it? How could all that happen? He said, sir, I don't know, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. The man mocked, well, what if Jonah isn't in heaven? He said, well, then you ask him. (laughs) There's a lot of people that look to prophets for direction. Some look to the zodiac prophets of astrology, the bogus predictions made daily in newspapers. Or they look to the newest person on the scene to talk about the environment or the economy, predicting their future. Some trust in Dionne Warwick, her 1-900 psychic line, or even the tabloid prophets that's in the supermarkets. You know, it's hard to believe people actually buy those things, but they do. And some of them just believe them as gospel truth. When we get to the Bible, we find it's not just a bunch of good guesses. It's not just a tabloid. It's not a prediction for weather like you have 
on nightly news, we have a document that over and over again proves itself to be from outside of our time and space continuum. It was given to us by God. And it's incredible as we discover that. God has always had his critics, and I can relate to the person who wrote this. Every baseball team could use a man who plays every position superbly and never makes an error. But so far, no one has been able to make him lay aside his hot dog and come out of the grandstands. There's a lot of people that approach the Bible that, oh, they're experts. They're the intelligent critics. And yet a lot of times they're like an armchair quarterback. Okay, get down off the grandstand and really show it to me. Now, as we get into our study today, we're going to read verses 1 through 8, try to get through all of them. That's what we've planned to do, and I've divided it up into two sections for you. Verses 1 through 3, Daniel documents the facts. That's what he says in verse 1. Daniel documents the facts. And then in verses 4 through 8, Daniel discloses the future. Let's read it. In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. And he wrote down his dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and had a man's heart, or a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, the second like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, Exceedingly strong, it had huge iron teeth, it was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I was considering the horns, there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, sounds like he had a wild night, wouldn't you say? It sounds sort of like an episode of Twilight Zone, these weird beasts that he sees in front of them, one after another. But I first draw your attention to the first three verses. Daniel, during Belshazzar's time, has this dream and a vision. And in verse 1, this is what he did. He wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. He's telling the truth, it says. This is what he saw. This is what he saw the future would hold. And so he wrote down the facts. Here's the problem. Critics have risen through history who have disputed that. Oh, these aren't facts. These are fabrications. Here's the problem. The things that Daniel has foretold in this book are so detailed and have been fulfilled with incredible accuracy that the critics said it just couldn't have happened. just couldn't be. Something's up. Something's weird. It's fishy. In chapter 11 alone, 
Within 35 verses, there are 135 predictions that have been fulfilled and documented. And they were predicted before the time that they happened. Here's the problem. You've got a group of people, critics, who criticize everything that is written in the Bible. The critics approach the Bible with a lens, a window, presuppositions. They presuppose, number one, we live in a closed system. There is no revelation that is given to man outside of this domain of time and space. We live in a closed system. Thus, the miraculous doesn't happen. Number two, since these things did happen that are written about in the book of Daniel, that means that they must have been written after the fact, not before the fact. Because they seem miraculous. They seem like there's details only God could know and tell. But we know that God doesn't know or tell because we live in a closed system. Therefore, somebody must have written the book of Daniel after all these things occurred rather than before they occurred. Now, some of these critics are very outspoken. Not only do they have presuppositions, some of them have outright hatred for Christians. You've heard of Madeleine Murray O'Hare, the head of the Atheist Society for America. After having a debate with a Christian apologist, she had an interview with the Wittenberg door, and she said, quote, Christianity is intolerant. Now listen carefully. Christianity is intolerant, anti-democratic, anti-sexual, anti-life. It is anti-woman, and I cannot stand that. It is anti-everything that is good and human and decent and kind and loving and understanding. I used to have an intellectual hatred <coughs> excuse me, for Christianity. I think it's broadening now. I'm enjoying hating the whole thing. You know what I have against Christianity? They're hateful and intolerant, and I hate them. (laughs) Now, for those of us who are Christians, we have no problem with prophecy. It's no big deal. We could easily skip over this study, and yet, I believe it's important that we look at it closely. We believe that God, being sovereign, all-powerful, omnipotent, can speak about the future with such detail as easily as somebody would with broad kind of predictions. But there are people who beg to differ. Here's what some of them say. They say, well, the children of Israel really didn't go through the Red Sea and have the waters part because we live in a closed system. Those things don't happen. So what really happened is they passed through the Reed Sea, the Sea of Reeds. It's about 18 inches to 2 feet deep. And they waded through from one side to the other side and went into the Promised Land. That's how they come up with a natural kind of an explanation which is even a greater miracle that the entire Egyptian army that pursued them drowned in 18 inches of water. It's fascinating. They haven't really dealt with that. They'll say, oh, I know you think manna fell from heaven, but that doesn't happen. Manna doesn't fall from heaven. I've never observed it. And so probably what it means is that there is a plant in the Sinai that oozes a sap that hardens overnight, and you can pick out that sap and eat it and sustain for a while your life on that. Or fire falling from heaven when Elijah stood with all of those prophets on Mount Carmel. That doesn't happen. What probably happened was an electric storm. And at the right moment, lightning fell and struck a few of those prophets, and the Bible kind of elaborates on it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Dead people don't resuscitate. I've never seen one. We live in a closed system. What probably happened is the disciples hallucinated in mass. Even 500 of them at one time. All thought they saw this image, but it really wasn't a true resurrection. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus where he heard a voice and saw something, that really didn't happen. Sunstroke was responsible for that, and again a hallucination. Coming up with a natural explanation for what the Bible says is supernatural. Now when they get to Daniel, they have a bigger problem because it is so accurate in what it predicts for the future, they've got to come up with an explanation. It bugs them. It's like Dr. A. Casey Morrison from the New York Academy of Sciences says, he's a Christian scientist, and he said it's like this, if I took ten pennies, put them in my pocket, after having marked those ten pennies, one, two, three, all the way to ten, put them in my pocket, and then I make a prediction. I prophesy, ladies and gentlemen, I'm about to put my right hand in my pocket and select penny mark number one. My odds are one in ten. Let's say I put my hand in my pocket, pull it up, and you go, ooh, wow, he did it. Against the odds, one in ten, he selected the penny. Impressive. Then I say, ladies and gentlemen, I'm about to put my hand in my pocket, pull out penny number two. The odds now decrease exponentially. I have a one in 90 chance that I'll pull it out. And if I were to pull it out, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the way to ten, sequentially, after making the predictions, my odds would be around one in ten, uh, would be uh, one in three million six hundred and twenty-six something thousand. It'd be impressive if I could do it. Now, let's say I did it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ooh and ah. I know some of you well enough to go, Something's up. He did something. It's a trick. The game is somehow fixed. These things just don't happen on their own. And Dr. A. Casey Morrison says, exactly. There's too many detailed prophecies. Thus people say the game is fixed. And indeed it is. Okay. The book of Daniel has been attacked. And it's important that we discover why and how to answer it. In the third century, there was a philosopher named Prophery. And he said that Daniel was not written, as it says it's written, 6th century B.C., but it was written after all the events took place, around 165 B.C., during the Maccabean period. And that some unknown Jewish person wrote it to bolster the faith of the Jewish nation as Antiochus Epiphanes the Syrian was trying to take over the country. And this philosopher says that Daniel is not a predictive prophecy, is written after the fact, and it belongs to spurious writings called the pseudepigrapha, second century Jewish writings that sound like prophecy, but they're bogus. And he hated Christians so much, he wrote 15 books, and he called the whole set against the Christians. He was trying to destroy Christianity, bolster people's faith in polytheism, and just kind of make Christianity extinct altogether. You say, Skip, so what? What's the big deal? I'm a Christian. You don't have to convince me. Well, the big deal is this. If the book of Daniel falls, the Bible falls, as I see it. You say, I don't believe that. Well, Jesus said, 
When you see the abomination of desolation is spoken of by Daniel the prophet. He didn't say, by Daniel the forgerer. By Daniel the liar. By that 165 B.C. guy, whoever wrote it, we don't know, but his name wasn't Daniel. Jesus called him a prophet. Peter, Paul, John, all base much of their writings upon the predictions made by the book of Daniel. If Daniel falls, Christianity falls. It's all warp and woof the word of God. Listen to what Sir Isaac Newton said. By the way, a lot of you didn't know Sir Isaac Newton, who we know observed gravity and wrote it down, wrote more about the Bible than he did about science, being a believer. Sir Isaac Newton said, quote, Whoever rejects the prophecies of Daniel does as much as if he undermined the Christian religion. See, it's important. If you can throw out Daniel, you throw out the Bible. We might as well all go home and be couch potatoes. So we need to substantiate it. How do we do it? Number one, by archaeology. Archaeology disproves the critics. Here's an example. You read in verse 1 of this character Belshazzar, right? Now the secular historian up until recently would laugh, Oh, Belshazzar, there's never such a person who ever lived in Babylon. For we know would say the secular historian, the last king of Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar, not Belshazzar. But then they started digging in the Mesopotamian Valley. And in their recent digs, they found clay tablets. They assembled the clay tablets, sent them to the British Museum, had the Assyriologists decipher them. They found some interesting things. Number one, they found a clay tablet with the name Belshazzar on it. And so the critics went, ooh, hmm, there really was a Belshazzar. Then they found a second tablet that had Belshazzar and his, uh, or Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar. And they went, ooh, uh-oh, they were father and son. Then they found a third clay tablet that said both of them were both kings at the same time, co-regents in Babylon. And that Belshazzar was killed, as Daniel said, and Nabonidus just sort of faded off into oblivion. All of this was substantiated by Yale University and their Assyriologists. Nelson Gluick, one of the foremost archaeologists of the entire Middle East, not a Christian, said, quote, No archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. I assert the almost incredibly accurate historical memory of the Bible, and particularly so when fortified by archaeological facts. So here you've got the critics. Daniel didn't write it. There's so many mistakes here. Belshazzar, he didn't even live. But archaeology disproves what they say. Secondly, manuscript evidence disproves the critics. Now, I don't know what version of the Bible you carry this morning. You probably either have the old King Jimmy, the new King James, the NIV, or the New American Standard. You might have others, but those are the four biggies that most Christians carry. In the New Testament, they carried a version called the Septuagint version. It was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, translated from Hebrew into Greek, down in Alexandria, Egypt, about 275 B.C., or 110 years before the critics say Daniel was ever written. What's interesting is Daniel's in it. 
Big as life. Then we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, written just prior to the time the critics say the book of Daniel was written. And Daniel's in the Dead Sea Scrolls in Hebrew and Aramaic, even as we read it. But it's the Aramaic, not of the Maccabean period, but of the 6th century B.C. period. So you have archaeology saying, critics, you're wrong. You have manuscript evidence saying, critics, you're wrong. And thirdly, historical references say the critics are wrong. You see, there was a historian back then named Josephus. He was hired by the Romans. He was a Jew. But the Romans wanted a detailed history of the Jewish nation from the time of Abraham to the time the Romans took over Jerusalem in 70 A.D. They hired Josephus to do it. Interestingly enough, Josephus has a story in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews, about Alexander the Great coming against Jerusalem. He said that Alexander and his troops were posed against the city of Tyre and Babylon. He asked Jerusalem for provisions. Jerusalem said, no way, Jose. Of course, I'm modifying it a little bit with the terminology. No, we won't help you. Alexander became so angry, he decided to unleash his fury upon Jerusalem. Amassed his troops against Jerusalem, came to the Mount of Olives. Josephus said when he did, a guy by the name of Jadua, the high priest of Jerusalem, met Alexander and his troops on the Mount of Olives, dressed in a white robe. And Alexander, in his fury, approached the city. Jadua unrolled the scroll of the book of Daniel, showing to Alexander the Great how Daniel predicted the victories of Alexander. It so impressed Alexander. He got off his horse and worshipped God. Went to the temple, made a sacrifice in the temple. All this happened, according to Josephus, in 330 B.C. A hundred years before, the critics say the book of Daniel was written. 110 years before. The flow of history also proves the critics wrong. Look at it this way. Daniel made a bunch of predictions. Well, enough time has elapsed from his time to our time to look back and say, is this guy right or wrong? He was right. He predicted the rise of four kingdoms, including Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. He was right. Some of the predictions he made he couldn't have possibly known about when he wrote them, even if they were written in 165 B.C. It, it, It reminds me very much of what Robert Jastrow said, an astrophysicist who wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. He says, I'm an agnostic. I really don't believe in God. But I do have a problem. As I study the heavens, I study science, I look at the predictions of the Bible. And at the end of his book, he wrote this. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Oh, here's the scientist, the skeptic, the critic. They rise higher and higher. And finally, with all their discoveries, the theologians goes, What's been taking you guys so long? We've been here long before you have. You finally caught up. You see, folks, prophecy is one of God's calling cards. That God said, I'm going to tell you things in advance, Isaiah chapter 46, so that you might know that I am the living God. There's none besides me. 
I'm going to make a prediction. I'm going to tell you about it way in advance so that when it happens, you go, wow, he really is God. He really does control history. So he said, Abraham, your descendants will go down to Egypt for 400 years. It happened. Israel, you've sinned against God. I'm going to send you into the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. It happened. And then God even predicted that the children of Israel would be released and predicted who would do it. Cyrus, 200 years before he was even born. Just to add a little twist to the story. And it all happened. It's an incredible thing. Let me draw this example, this analogy for you. I I love it. I've used it often. It blows my mind. Peter Stoner, professor of science and math, physics, wrote a book called Science Speaks. And what intrigued this man is the number of prophecies, predictions about Jesus Christ, who he was, what he would do. He discovered there are 330 prophecies in the Old Testament that predict Jesus Christ. They were fulfilled in Jesus very accurately. And so he thought, what are the sheer odds of all these prophets writing different predictions and having them all come true in one human being? He started with eight predictions, eight prophecies. And he concurred that for one man in history to fulfill eight prophecies predicted in the Old Testament, the odds would be one in ten to the 17th power. So what does that mean? If you took the number, 10 to the 17th power, and you took that amount of silver dollar coins stacked, you could fill the entire state of Texas two feet deep with that number of silver dollars. If you picked one of them in advance, sent a man to walk through Texas, hey, buddy, start at El Paso and just go for it. Cover the whole landscape. But I want you to pick out the very one that I picked in advance. I won't tell you where it is. The odds of him doing that would be the same odds of the prophets predicting eight things and having them all be fulfilled in one person. Peter Stoner said, that's awesome. Now what would the odds be of one man in history fulfilling 16 predictions? He said the odds would be one in ten to the 45th power. And if you took that many silver dollars and made a globe out of it, a sphere, it would be pretty big. How big would it be? Well, if you took the center of that globe and you took the distance from the earth to the sun and went 30 times the distance from the earth to the sun in all directions, that's the size globe you'd have. Silver dollars. Pick one. Send somebody into that globe to find the one silver dollar that you pre-selected, the odds of him finding that one would be 1 in 10 to the 45th power, or the odds of one man in history fulfilling 16 predictions that Jesus fulfilled. Peter Stoner was so intrigued with this, he said, what would the odds of one man fulfilling 48 prophecies be? He said, the odds would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. He said, I can't use silver dollars anymore to give you an illustration. They're too big. So he went to electrons. And to show you how many there are, he said, let's say you took electrons and stacked them side by side, made one linear inch, and you were to count all of the electrons in one inch only at the rate of 250 electrons per minute. That's Holland. Without eating, sleeping, drinking, just counting. It would take you 19 million years to count one inch. 
If you took one cubic inch of electrons, counting them at 250 electrons per minute nonstop, it would take you 19 million years cubed. Or 19 million years times 19 million years times 19 million years. That's roughly the number 1 in 10 to the, or 10 to the 157th power. Pick one electron. Send somebody in there to find it. You say, oh, come on, this is impossible. Absolutely. Jesus fulfilled not 48, 330 direct prophecies or references and inferences. Peter Stoner was amazed. He sent his research to the American Scientific Foundation. They said it's substantiated. It's bona fide scientific evidence. Very well done, very well documented. Now, if that's the case, and prophecy is such an amazing thing, and the critics can be silenced, why do the critics persist? I have a hunch. There's a story of a very wealthy man shortly after the microscope was developed, invented. He went to look at one in a laboratory. He was amazed that he could put his eye on that piece of glass and he could see the petals of a rose, crystals, the details of his hair and leaves and so forth. He decided to pay the incredible sum of money that it took for him to have one personally. He bought one and took it home. And he was just excited about what he could discover in this world until one day he decided to see what the food that he was about to eat looks like. Put it under the microscope. Discovered all sorts of living creatures crawling around. The microorganisms. He was disgusted. What to do? It's his favorite food. He threw out the microscope. <laughs> he threw out the very instrument that revealed the truth, the facts. And there's a lot of people that look at the evidence, and they throw it out because the Bible uncovers their sinful lifestyle. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Neither would they come to the light, lest their deeds should be exposed. So they throw it out. Now look in verse 4. Not only does Daniel discuss and put down the facts, but he discloses the future. He has a restless sleep, and he sees these beasts come out. Verse 4, the first was like a lion that had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off. It was lifted off from the earth, made to stand on two feet like a man, and had a man's heart, or a man's heart was given to it. Now this corresponds, remember back to chapter 2, we've already discussed that huge metallic image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. He saw four successive kingdoms, head of gold, which is Babylon, he saw the image having a chest and arms of silver, Medo-Persian Empire. He saw the abdomen and thighs of brass, the Grecian Empire. And finally, the legs of Rome, the Roman Empire. This vision is basically the same information, but seen from a different perspective. Nebuchadnezzar saw a beautiful, shiny image. Daniel saw beasts. The difference, I believe, is the difference from a human perspective to a divine perspective. Man sees the kingdoms of the earth and goes, wow, impressive, seductive, political power. God sees the kingdoms of the earth as a bunch of animals vying for power, wanting to take over. You know, God sees things differently from the way we see things. When Samuel was to anoint the king for Israel, and he went to Jesse's house, and he looked at that tall, strapping young man named Eliab, he thought, this guy's the, he's king material all the way, I'm telling you. 
God says, Samuel, I didn't choose him. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You're looking at his outward handsomeness and height, but I have rejected him. I've chosen David. God sees things differently. Now, this first beast in verse 4 is a lion with eagle's wings. When Daniel saw the vision, he would know what it's talking about. That was the symbol of the Babylonian kingdom. It's emblazoned upon the gates of Babylon. Lion being the king of beasts, with eagle's wings being the king of the birds, so to speak, or of avian species, the eagle with all of its grandeur. And archaeological digs have substantiated the lion with eagle's wings is a picture of Babylon. But the detail we are given is that the wings are plucked off, which probably refers to chapter 4. Remember what happened there? Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the balcony overlooking Babylon one night, and he has a strong case of eye disease. He says, I built Babylon. I did it. I'm awesome. I'm great. I'm the king. I, I, I. And so God said, buddy, your time's up. God humbled him, sent him out to pasture, very literally, for seven seasons, till he was eating grass and his hair grew out on his body, a medical condition known as lycanthropy, until he humbled himself and a man's heart was given to him. That's Nebuchadnezzar. Then in verse 5, We have a bear or a beast, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise and devour much flesh. This is the Medo-Persian Empire, if you remember back to our study in Daniel 2. But here we have this bear kind of tilted up on one side. Because the Medo-Persian Empire was a coalition of Media and Persia, Persia being the stronger, Media being the weaker, and it was a lopsided kind of a union. Cyrus was in charge, but they never really gelled, and it was a short-lived kind of an empire. Here, it's seen as a bear. And a bear is known for its brute strength. It's not as fast as other animals, but it's very, very strong. A fitting description of the Medo-Persian Empire, who with brute force took over the world. In fact, in one of the battles, when King Xerxes fought the Greeks, he amassed an army of 2,500,000 to fight against them. Huge army, and just with force, took them over. Then the bear has three ribs uh, sticking in its teeth. Uh, Barbecued? I don't know. But three ribs which fit historically the picture. It was with three separate battles, that Asia Minor, that Egypt, and the Lydian kingdom were overcome by the Medes and the Persians. So it historically fits. Then the fourth beast, or the third beast, is a leopard with four heads. It says in verse 6, After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, a leopard is one of the most agile of the beasts. It's not the strongest like the bear, but it's quick. And one of the things that characterized the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great was speed. In ten years, he conquered the Medo-Persian Empire and the rest of the world. He was 29 years old, and he wept because there was nothing left to conquer. 29 years old, and he's the head of a world-governing empire. Not only did it overtake things swiftly, but also it broke up swiftly. When he was 33 years old, 
Alexander the Great died. And when he died, they said, who's going to take over the kingdom? Alexander said, give it to the strong and his four generals. Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus took and divided the kingdom up into four. Hence, we see here the four heads that are given to it. Then in verse 7, we have that final beast. After this, in the night vision, I behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had iron teeth. It was devouring and breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns. There was another horn, a little one coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, we're going to devote more time to this personage. We'll discover who he is in subsequent studies. This fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire. It was said that Rome ruled with an iron rule, an iron fist. And this corresponds to the legs of iron that Nebuchadnezzar saw, like a steamroller it took over all of the empires that went before it. Rome fell by fragmentation. It was never conquered. It fragmented all over North Africa, Europe, and so forth. And in another study, we'll pick up the future predictions of this. Here's the point. Daniel recorded the facts... Daniel recorded the future. He recorded what he saw. It was not a forgery. The critics can be gone if they study the evidence. Prophecy is God's calling card. He predicted the future, and all the things that he predicted of the four kingdoms have taken place. Prophecy authenticates and confirms the word of God. Listen again to Isaiah chapter 46. God said, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. God rules in history. Nebuchadnezzar was standing on the palace going, I control history. God showed him that he didn't, but that he himself controlled history. Belshazzar thought he was in control, but he wasn't. I don't know where you stand this morning. If you're a person who says, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength, I'm devoted to Him, I trust in the promises of this book. Or if you're the kind of a person who says, well, the Bible is a good book. It's among the great literature of the world, but that's all. It reminds me of a story out of the London Observer, a newspaper in London, England. It ran a story, and I've read it to you once before, about a family of mice. Listen to the story. A family of mice lived in a grand piano. They enjoyed listening to the music that came from the great player who they never saw, but who they believed in, because they enjoyed the music that came from the piano. One day, one of the little mice got especially brave, and he climbed deep into the bowels of the piano. He made an astonishing discovery. The music did not come from some great piano player. But rather, the music came from wires that reverberated back and forth. The little mouse returned to his family tremendously excited. He informed his family that there was no great piano player who made the piano music. Rather, there were these little wires that reverberated back and forth. The family of mice abandoned their belief in the great piano player. 
Instead, they had a totally mechanistic view. One day, another one of the little mice got especially brave, and he climbed even further up into the bowels of the piano. To his amazement, he found that, indeed, the music did not come from the reverberating wires, but rather from little hammers that struck the wires. It was those hammers that really made the music. He returned to his family with a new description of the source of the music. The family of mice rejoiced that they were so educated that they understood there's no great piano player, but rather the music came from little hammers that struck the wires. The family of mice did not believe there was a piano player playing the piano. Instead, they believed their mechanistic understanding of the universe explained all reality. But the fact is, the player continued to play the music. God plays his music throughout history. His calling card, his proof, is he predicts things before they happen. So that people go, wow, this is God speaking. This is God's word. And I trust that as you leave this morning, you'll be able to walk out with an even firmer confidence that the book that you hold and all the promises that are written for you are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. God has given you his word. It's a fact. It's tried and true. Maybe if you've come and you're a skeptic, or you'll listen to this by tape and you're a skeptic, I would challenge that you'd open your mind and especially your heart to the Lord. Truly examine the evidence and then make your commitment to Jesus. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we are grateful that you've given us hearts to rejoice in your promises. You've given us minds to understand and also to rejoice as we're called to love you with our minds as well as our hearts. Lord, we thank you that not only in the book of Daniel did you give us a picture of Daniel's life, but this clear, detailed painting of the future. And everything that's been predicted, except those final kingdoms, as Daniel saw the, all of those empires, they've been fulfilled. And because of that, we trust that the other kingdom that he talks about, of Jesus ruling and reigning, will also take place. We look forward to that event. We trust you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.